0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Bogan, who served as a flight medic in the US Air Force. He joined the military as a way to find opportunities beyond his tough neighborhood in Chicago and credits that decision with allowing him to become the first person in the history of his family to graduate from college.
1: I'm a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force Reserve. I've been serving for 32 years. So I am actually the first to join the Air Force uh, in my family. I embarked on this path from seeing a commercial uh, on television uh, to join the reserves. I'm from Chicago and I grew up in a really rough neighborhood in Chicago. And I saw the military as an escape route to you know, leave the uh, community that I was in. And uh, so I signed up to join. My cousin and I were both was going to join together. But prior to uh, he getting the opportunity to join, he was shot and killed. And so in my neighborhood, just down the street from my home. And so that was even more motivation to change the the circumstances that I was in. I didn't discuss it with anybody outside the family. My family uh, knew about it. And it wasn't something that Uh, I discussed with any of my friends or anybody because I didn't want to be influenced by their impression uh, of the military. A lot of folks uh, felt and believed that, you know, for minorities who joined the military, that they're always the ones who were sent off to the front lines to die. And so I didn't want to be influenced by anybody else's decision. And so I didn't share it with them. I just talked with my family about it. And once uh, Lenny was killed, I was like, I got to go. And off I went. You know, I am uh, extremely glad that I made that decision. It really changed uh, my life, the trajectory of my life. Uh, because in Illinois, they have this program. It's called the Illinois Veterans uh, Education Benefit Program, where if you join the military and serve at least a year of active duty time, the state of Illinois would pay book tuition and fees. So I was able to go to college and to become the first In the history of my family to graduate college. And so that's what it afforded me. And I knew that there were a lot of benefits associated with uh, being in the military. Uh, Obviously the travel, I've traveled all over the world um, and I've met so many people. And so uh, I'm a strong supporter of it. I I try to encourage young people uh, to join. And I think it's a really good way of being a patriot uh, to this country. Particularly for me, you know, as a as an African American in this country, one of the things that I have experienced is when I'm in uniform, I am treated totally different than when I'm not in uniform. And I say that because, you know, it's not fully realized upon many people who look like me, the, the benefits of this country. And of uh, feeling like we belong in this country. And so that, you know, part of my wearing the uniform is proving that, hey, I-, I love this country too. I'm willing to serve and to put my life on the line for this country too. I'm a patriot uh, as well, right? And that has how it's been er- early on. But the definition of patriot has kind of shifted, or oh, the impression of what a patriot is has uh, has shifted in these past, you know, Five years or so, and so that um, it's a little convoluted of what a real patriot is now versus you know previously. Immediately after high school, I worked. I had a summer job at the VA, and I would you know see the various soldiers, uh, you know, amputees and you know, very its medical conditions, and I was always wanted and wanted to help. I've always been a helping person. I get that from my mom. She helps everybody. So I was like, "Wow, you know, I wish I knew how to, you know, provide that type of care." So when I signed up, I I passed the ASVAB to say you can go into any career you want to go into. And I was like, "I want to try this medical thing." And so I became a medic, uh, air vac tech, Um, and so we flew missions on the C-130 aircraft uh, as an air vac tech. Um, and so, what motivated me was that summer I spent as a summer intern at the at the VA, um, seeing all the the wounded soldiers, and uh, just wanted to kind of do my part uh, to help. So I grew up in this area, in this neighborhood where I saw a lot of violence, you know, shootings and beating, all sorts of things, and I just never knew, you know, what to do to help. Right, and so. It may have had a role in my decision. But the primary goal was, you know, how can I help these these soldiers? But it very well may have just wanting to be trained in emergency medicine was something that I, you know, wanted to do. So I don't know if Lenny had a direct impact. It could have had a, you know, small impact on that decision. I just was, you know, it's 32 years ago. Um, I do recall heavily that the VA, that job I had at the VA was a big influencer. So, you know, you go off to basic training and then you go up to uh, at, in San Antonio, uh, Lackland Air Force Base, and then you go to Shepherd Air Force Base. Back then, you go to Shepherd Air Force Base for uh, your all your medical training. It's like a six-month school and you really learn to, to become an EMT and, uh, and so that you learn all of the basic uh, parts of that. After that six months, then you do a orientation uh, at a hospital. And so my first one was at David Grant Hospital in in Travis. And what you're doing is you're doing a rotation through each uh, section. So I got to work with geriatrics, I got to work with an OB, med surge, uh, infectious disease, to get that hands-on experience uh, working at a clinic for about six months. Uh, And then you do a follow on at another clinic. So I left David Grant and I went to Wright Patterson in Ohio for another additional like six months of rotation. And there I got to work in the psych ward and in various floors there, honing your skills. And then after that, you go off to the actual flying training uh, to learn how to uh, be a flight medic and learn the aircraft because you have to learn how to. Assemble the aircraft, you learn about decompression sickness and all the various uh, altitude sickness, all that training uh, comes into play as well. So it's, it ends up being almost a two year uh, training from from basic training all the way through the end. Um, so what happens is uh, you, you get on the aircraft. Back then, we were doing C-130s now you do any aircraft. Any aircraft can be converted into a flying hospital. So you convert the aircraft into a flying hospital, you, you fly in, you load up patients and you just stabilize them from point A to point B. So you get them on board. And back then at C-130 we can carry up to 72 patients uh, and it's a five person crew. You have three med techs and two nurses and you load the patients up and you stabilize them from, you know, where you pick them up to where you drop them off. And it's just a lot of vital signs and, you know, checking their IV bags and all those types of things. It's just, what you're keeping them alive until you get them to the next echelon of care. You you always kept a barf bag with you and because uh, it's a bumpy ride. It is not a comfortable ride at all. The plane gets cold. It's either super cold or super hot. And so what happens is you know, you often strap yourself in. If you have like a critical patient, you have to strap yourself to that litter and stay with that patient. So you can take off and land while, while standing. But the elements in the aircraft either fluctuate. It was either extremely cold, extremely hot, very, very bumpy. And especially when we would do like tactical landings and, uh, you know, coming in as short runway landings and um, those things. But, um, you know, we made it through. It's really interesting. Particularly for those critical patients, you are, uh, it's very, you have to really see it, how you strap, you put a strap around your waist and you strap yourself to the actual uh, litter. And you're standing, bracing yourself as this plane is flying. And, you know, the, the tactical line is how they come in and approach and they do a really quick bank turn and uh, land and then stop in a very short period of time. So imagine the C-130 almost stopping. We, we would say, oh, it's stopping on a dime was a term that we would use. Like, And the C-130 could do that, you know what I mean? But you just have to make sure everything is secured and everything is tied down. And, you know, we did it. We practiced it a lot. And so that when we had to do it, it just flowed. You know, as a reservist, we would go to... Uh, Germany. It was actually in Germany, and we were flying, it was it was they were called JAGO missions. It was the Joint Guardian Operation missions that uh we get on a C one hundred and thirty and we were fly from Germany down into Bosnia to either drop off equipment and then pick up patients and then fly them back to Germany, back to Ramstein. And, you know, Langstuhl is not far from uh Ramstein, so we was housed in Germany, flying in and out. We weren't based in Bosnia, spending the night in Bosnia. We were based in Germany and would go down and fly those what they call Jago missions uh down into Bosnia to pick up aircraft. And I tell you what was interesting is the first time we went in was lining to seeing how they line the aircraft with the uh, armor plates. Like there's like this bulletproof uh armor uh they line the aircraft with, and then everybody's wearing a flak vest, a uh, bulletproof vest. And you have your helmet on and everything. And so when the loadmaster, so on the, on the C-130, you have a five-person crew. Um, you have your pilot, co-pilot, your navigator, your engineer, and the loadmaster. And the loadmaster controls the back part of the aircraft where we would you know, set up everything. And when I saw the loadmaster take his flag vest and actually sit on it, He didn't put it on, he sat on, and he goes, if someone's going to shoot at us, it's going to come up. (laughs) And so I would rather, you know, sit on mine and have my hind legs uh, protected uh, than wearing it up here. And so I I followed his lead. I actually took my vest off and sat on it (laughs) in the event someone were to shoot through the aircraft and, um, you know, at least I would protect my butt. By the time we get them on an the aircraft, they were stabilized enough to be able to fly. And so we were usually either the second or third echelon of care that was taking them on to uh, additional uh, echelons of care. Like LONSTU would be considered either like the third or fourth echelon of care. You have the different levels of care. Um, by the time we got in, they were stable enough to fly. It was primarily U.S. military members or allied folks who were injured that needed to, you know, be Arafat out. We just really cared about looking out for each other, um, doing our part to ensure that everything went off uh, without a hitch. And um, we just really bonded to accomplish the mission. We had a common cause, a common goal, you know, a common task to get after we were not mired in the mediocrity of what we all looked like and what our political position was and all of those things. I just never recall any of that being an issue in the thick of carrying out the mission. Uh, We just wanted to know that. Can you do your job? You can do your job. Good. I can do mine. We're all doing our part. Let's get after it. Let's make it successful. You know, I didn't care the pilots who was flying it aircraft, what they look like. Can they take off and land and get us there safely? You know, I didn't care that, you know, on our cruise, we had women and men and, you know, uh, folks who were just professionals at our jobs. Can we get the job done? That's what the focus was. And and so all of that goes out the windows when you're in the thick of serving together. One of the things that even in your training, you train together. You work together like, like you say, everybody bleeds red. And you provide um just the best care to every to any patient in front of you. You provide the absolute best care that you can. And you know, the common purpose of accomplishing the mission kept us focused. And so that we didn't have any uh distractions. I find that when people are not working toward a common goal a common mission a common purpose, they become distracted by the noise that's happening on the side. When you have time to sit around and talk politics and do those things is where the differences of opinion come up. But when you're out carrying out the mission and in the thick of getting the job done, you're just staying focused on being successful at your job. And particularly for us, saving lives and sustaining lives to get them to the next uh, level of care. Yeah, there was a, a flight when uh, we have was doing a training mission and uh, on the C-130, and the engines began to fail. And I can remember we was on the aircraft, and it, it kind of it started to kind of shake. You know, it kind of like from side to side, like it was like a, as you have like a flat tire, there's like a, a limp type of a motion, the aircraft began to kind of shake. One of the engines kind of went out. And then, uh, and the loadmaster master started running back and forth from one side to the other. And so we're like, what's going on, right? So they had to shut down the engine, try to restart it. It wouldn't restart because the fear was that, you know, once one engine shut down, it was going to be a chain reaction, that the, all the engines would start uh, shutting down. And so, they end up shutting down that aircraft. The plane could still fly, because it was a four-prop plane. But just it, just in that moment, you go, hmm, this could be it. Like, if these engines go down, like, this could be the end of all of this uh, for us on this aircraft. And it was a sobering moment for me to really get after life and get after the goals and the things that I, I wanted to. Um, accomplished, but that that stands out to me, of all the uh, missions I've been on, was that the engines starting to fail in on that one aircraft at that time. But we we landed safely. Uh, you know, you land in the fire trucks and behind you, and you know, but everything was was good.
0: Presidencies can be found anywhere fine. podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone. You know, I'd finished college the first in the history of my family to finish college. And, you know, there was a commissioning opportunity in the Air Force. And at this time, I was stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama as a reservist. And there was this really push to um, create more diversity within the uh, higher ranks. And so the Air Force Reserve has this program called Deserving Airmen Program. It's for enlisted members who have a college education, they can compete, put together a package that gets reviewed and you could do an interview and you can get the board was selected. You go before a board, they review your package and you sit down for a face-to-face interview and then they select you. And I distinctly recall 25 people had applied for this job, for this one position. And of those 25, I I was selected. And it was just furthering my goals um, in my career um, in the uh, in the Air Force. I looked at it. I said, I can I would make it to chief master sergeant, which is E-9, or I could do the officer route and get to, you know, at least major lieutenant colonel. And I looked at the retirement pen. I go, hmm, I think I'll go that route. I'm an extremely optimistic person and I thought people actually would be happy for me. Like, yo, that's great, you're doing it. No, it was, <laughs> it was a mad shade. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, uh, what are you doing? Like, you know, uh, you're going to the dark side, things like that. Uh, and I think it was fun ribbing and uh, and jokes, but a lot of times when I do those things, I I do it kind of like when I joined I do it uh, with as few people knowing about it as possible so that I'm not overly influenced by other people, you know, input or impression or, you know, like, oh, man, you could, you shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Uh, so once I was selected, people found out, they made the announcement that I was selected and then all the ripping and things came. Yeah, because, you know, the Enlistic Core really is the heartbeat of the... Uh, of the branches and the worker bees who are really out there getting it done. Uh, Even today, you know, I, the list of folks I serve with, they are always out there getting it done. And I just try to provide top cover. I have a really great relationship because I'm prior enlisted and there's a different uh, way of interacting with them because I understand what life is like as an enlisted member. But yeah, I think because they're the enlisted core, really is the what keeps it going and what the, out there getting it done, making it happen, the day to day work. And we're just to provide guidance and direction and, and top cover. Um, and so part of that ribbing is, oh, you're going to go and and sit in the chair and put your feet up. You're not going to be out here working it, you know, in the trenches with us, uh, you know. So. That's pretty much where that is. Having been uh, enlisted and being mentored by some great mentors, I consider myself a master mentor, right? And what I do is I encourage people to greatness. And part of my philosophy is to put my hand in their back and, and push them along but let them know that if they were to fall backwards, I'm there to catch them. And so we have to encourage, we have to motivate, we have to inspire, uh, we have to uplift, and and then we have to allow room for creativity. And the key for me is it's okay to make a mistake. You can bounce back from it. You don't have to crumble under a mistake. So long as you have, uh, you know, life in your body, Air to breathe, you can get after and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. So, you have to set a vision, some goals of where you want to be, and then, you know, move along. So, one of the things I did, you know, I served as the, we used to have this called Human Resource Development Council in the Air Force Reserve. Within there is a mentoring program. And I would easily, I would say, because I prior enlisted, Uh, I have mentored easily 20 20 plus prior enlisted to become officers, Uh, anywhere from pilots to logistics officers to nurses. So that's a huge piece in uh, my philosophy. My leadership philosophy is to inspire those and encourage them to get after it and, um, you know, motivate them and mentor them through it. I know it sounds kind of choppy, but, you know. That's um, kind of my leadership philosophy and style. We train to be ready. We train in the event that our nation calls us, that we are prepared. I think that our folks are prepared and ready to go anytime our nation needs us. And that's the sacrifice that uh, we make, you know, we're consummate professionals and that's, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating thing and how they have been able to bridge the gap in between like your day-to-day uh, operation, your day-to-day working that could then morph into a combat situation if needed. And so like, for example, if you are a medic, you work in the clinic during the, you know, down what I call downtime, you're servicing patients, you're doing your IVs and you're doing all that. And then, if in a combat situation, that's able to, to translate into where you are uh, on the ground. So we uh, we practice it, we do it day to day, and so that if need to uh, in an operational environment, we're prepared to do it. And you know, I think um, hopefully, diplomatic uh, you know events will prevail. But uh, if not, we're ready to go. Yeah, so I, uh, in my downtime I write. I am a part of the Veterans Writing Project at the Writers Guild Foundation. And I, um, I pretty much write stories about ordinary people who are put in extraordinary situations who have to make a decision to either fold or stand up and become the heroes of their story, the heroes of their circumstance. And so I write uh, hero characters who rise to the occasion uh, to overcome the obstacles that are they're faced with. You know, in the in the Air Force, there's only 20 African American male fighter pilots in the whole of the Air Force, and um, there are only four who fly the F-22. And so my, the, I'm working on a piece about an F-22 uh, pilot who is really excited. He he wants to become the um, demo pilot for the F-22, which is a high honor. And so he has to meet some criteria in order to do that, and uh, goes meet a lot of challenges and a lot of obstacles. And but you know, he eventually gets there, and. So, yeah, I write that. And I'm working on another piece as well about a combat medic, actually. (laughs) It's a a TV series I'm writing about a combat medic who returns home to Chicago, my neighborhood, right, and thrusts himself into uh, providing uh, medical care for people in his neighborhood. He gets fed up with the apathetic response of emergency services. And, uh, you know, he puts on his combat medic bag and gets out there and starts patching up. Of folks uh, in his community. So it becomes like a Robin Hood. It's kind of like a Robin Hood story. And he's an adrenaline addicted comeback medic, you know. Um, so just some fascinating things. I just love to create. I love to write. I love to tell stories. And, uh, you know, and I get out there and start uh, making it happen. What made me come up with that story is You know, we know about all the violence that happened in Chicago and all the shootings and all the just the killings in those communities. And in the community that I grew up in, I mean, I grew up in a really rough neighborhood where, you know, more people were killed than graduated college. More people went to jail than graduated high school. And so to have a story where someone from within that community comes home and become a hero and an example of what could happen that is what inspired me. And then people in those conditions have to become the hero of their stories. They have to they have to stop waiting for someone else to come and fix the issues for them, right? They have to get involved and they have to make it happen because guess what? Nobody's coming. <laughs> Nobody's come to change your situation, to change your lifestyle, to change your circumstances. You have to change your circumstances. And so that's pretty much what uh, uh, that story is about. Motivating folks to get up, get out, do something. Uh, and even if it's not, because it becomes a medical vigilante, right? So the, the cops are after him. <laughs> but uh, at least, you know what I mean? He's trying to make a, a, a change in some way. One of the things I often say is we're all in this together. We are not each other's enemies and I'll share this with you quickly. I I had flown into Washington, D.C., and I was picked up by one of those shared ride drivers, and he was from Tunisia. And he said, I don't understand you Americans. Why do you have all these categories where you have to check all these different boxes? And he said, I didn't know what to check. (laughs) And he said, somebody told me to check the Hispanic box. And I said, well, no, according to America, uh, you're from Tunisia, you're Northern African, you're considered white from Northern Africa above. I bring this up uh, to say that there are a couple of things that really, three major things that really divides us in this country. Race is the number one. Race is the biggest divider in this country that keeps us all at each other's throat. Uh, Politics is another, and socioeconomic status is another. And how that fits into patriotism is folks who are uh, you know not of a certain hue are you know treated as if they're not they're not patriots or of a political of a you know a certain political position so patriotism isn't owned by one particular race or one particular political party of of people on certain socioeconomic status it's owned by the collective of us in this country We all play a role in this country. We have to realize we're not each other's enemies. We have to realize that we're all in this together. We have to realize that there are some folks out there who really want to disrupt and destroy who we are as Americans. And they like to sow seeds of discord to keep us at each other's throats. And so the whole notion of who's a patriot, who's not a patriot. If you sign up and you serve your country, and if you're just a good person looking out for yourself and the people around you, that all spells, uh, all elements of patriotism. And so no one has the magic wand to what is patriotism. I think we all do our part to contribute uh, to this country.
0: That was Lieutenant Colonel Daryl Bogan. Thanks for listening to Warriors In Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.